I told the uh, the person who came for the interview. I said, "You are a disgrace to the university that you represent." <laughs> no, it's true because if you are really who you are in terms of your qualification, you can you shouldn't be producing what you produce. I mean, a simple questions, yeah. Yeah. And this is just not on paper. Even discussing, I asked someone, "What is a PE?" They what is a PE? They couldn't explain. Oh my gosh! <laughs> How does one become an analyst who doesn't know what the PE is all about? Yeah. Right. So, you know, I mean, I can't take it, lah. So. To me, <laughs> I think Pankaj, what you just summarize is you're trying to uphold a standard when these people who come to get yeah. a job or ask for a job doesn't even uphold their standards yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, so you already, sure. I mean, the first cut you already out already lah. You know, yeah. so to start lah. So. Before we begin the podcast. Have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f R E E or www.firo.co slash free. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Firo Post Podcast, the best place for long-term stock investors. MJ, how are you today? Feeling very uh, excited uh, in terms of uh, just, you know, personal life and all that. Finally, we can get out. I know you are still not double vaxxed yet, so really? soon you will. Soon. Yes. On Wednesday, on Wednesday. Soon, soon, soon. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm excited for, for myself, for you, uh, for everyone, and actually for the guest today. Yes. So uh, a quick introduction of the guest, and I'm, I'm going to let him uh, you know, introduce himself more. So our guest today is a UM Alma Mater uh, person. He actually did accountancy and did an MBA in UM. And he started equities research in OSK. And if you guys remember, we did a podcast with Chris Eng, who is now at Attica. He used to be Chris Eng's boss. So you know, we'll put a link. <laughs> we'll put a link uh, somewhere on the right. Yeah, to, uh, to, to, to that podcast. So, Mr. Pankaj Kumar, did I pronounce your name correctly? Yes, correct. Yeah. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Pankaj. Thanks. Thanks, uh, John. Yeah. So we're going to start off with uh, probably your, your early childhood and, um, you know, what actually, what did a 15-year-old Pankaj look like, actually? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. Uh, if, you, if I were to bump and see any of the uh, teenage uh, friends that I used to have uh, back in, uh, you know, mid-secondary mid school, uh, they would still recognize me. Oh, really? Wow. Almost the same face. Uh, <laughs> As I was 40 years ago, uh, not much change. Yeah, uh, I'm very much about the same. Uh, but in terms of a person, of course, it's very different today. Uh, but I think uh, coming from where your audience are coming from, I think they probably want to know a little bit more of my background uh, in terms of my experience. Yeah, uh, because. Uh, 
not many people will believe this when I tell them that I actually started following the stock market at a very much, a very early age. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think I could tell you that I think I was as young as a 12-year-old boy yeah, uh, who started to learn about the market itself. Yeah? Uh, the market back then, we are talking about more than 40 years ago, is very mm. different than what it is today, yeah? uh, where technology is totally absent, yeah, obviously. Uh, everything is done over the phone, uh, with your reminder. Uh, and you listen to market report at 7 p.m. on, on the blue... Blue Network, they call it, I think, like Radio 4. Oh. Yeah, RTM. Mm. Yeah, they, they, they will uh, summarize all the stock prices, you know, ANCOM, LCOM, whatever, you know, uh, the closing prices and all that. Yeah, and you will know, oh, okay, this stock I'm holding, uh, you know, I this price is up two cents today, whatever. Right? Uh, so let's say it comes to finance. Yeah, I think I remember those days, my father used to own a company called Killing Hall. Ooh. Are they still around? I don't think no, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so these are some of the yesteryear names, like, yeah? So you'll hear these names, yeah? They're, oh, okay, surprise up today. So that's how we get market news. Wow. Yeah? What about Telex, ah? Pankaj, do they have uh, No, no, no. No Telex, no fax, no nothing. All by the phone. Oh. Okay? Uh, so I said the following at a very young age because I was curious, yeah? Uh, because my father was very keen in the market. Mm. Yeah. So uh, he buy and sell stocks. Then, you know, because of the curiosity, I, I started to ask him what is this and all that, what what it means, you know. Then we of course those days we get share certificates, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, those days, you know, you get very uh, funny looking ones, some huge ones, some small ones, all odds and shapes and sizes and all whatnot. You know? Uh, share certificates, you get annual reports, yeah. Uh, and you can read from there. You know, you start to learn the company's business, what they do. Yeah, uh, try to understand the numbers. Uh, that's where my numbers part came in, lah. Yeah, and I started to explore. I said, you know, became very curious to understand what it's all about about accounts, for example. Uh, that's where my accounting, uh, what do you call, uh, interest came in at the same time. And I started to pick up accounts uh, in Form Four, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Right, uh, we do principal accounts. They call it. Uh, and those days, uh, it was not offered in the school, and I could only take it privately. You know, I through, see. Uh, through tuition outside. I mean, you're talking about a small town back. I mean, I'm from Tampin, in Mr. It's a small okay. town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there's one teacher that teaches accounts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you go to his house yeah, to learn about principal accounts. Yeah. Uh, no, no other teaching. But I still managed to get an A1, so not a problem. Yeah, so in that sense, that's how your interest came about. And when my father used to trade, those days, there's no settlement period. Yeah, uh, If you remember today, we have T plus 2. Yeah. Uh, we used to have T plus 3. Before yes. that, was T plus 7. 7, correct. Yeah, but even before T plus 7, there was T plus nothing. <laughs> you know why? Why? Because those days, you only pay when the broker tells you your share certificate is ready. Oh! It has arrived. I see. All right. So if the share certificate has arrived, you will collect the share certificate and make your payment. Ah, but what if you don't want to pay up? That means you will, if you don't pay up, that means you don't get your share cert. You never. And you contract all that time. I, I suppose you contract all. Uh, I can't remember <laughs> that part, la, You know, but contract was not a in thing la, those days. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I I was 
I was like the grab guy today, lah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I will take the bus from Tampin to go to Malacca. Right, Malacca is about twenty miles away mm-hmm. yeah, from Tampin. To take the bus, go to the bus stop, come down, walk, go to the uh, booking office. Yeah, Chua and Co. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is now overtaken by RHB Securities. So, as a boy, yeah, at a twelve year old, yeah, so I'm the delivery boy. Yeah, I will bring the check and I'll okay. collect the cert. So same thing. Whenever my father sells shares, I will have to take the bus, go to Malacca, deliver the certificate. Wow. <laughs> right. So I was a bad, like a bad boy, lah. You know, doing all the running up and down. And that was my job. So I started to learn about market from there. Wow. Those days, open cry system. If you remember, yeah, the guy will write on the with the chalk, the chalkboard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, chalkboard right on the screen. So after I've done my work. I will go to the gallery and sit there and watch. All right, watch the remises, you know, on the table with multiple phones and don't know what not. You know, watch the guy who's writing on the board, rubbing away and then writing the next price. You know, so all that became a experience. I see. Yeah. So it, I became very excited about the market. So at a very early age, yeah, I started to learn, understand, you know, read newspapers, the business part, you know, to understand what's happening, you know. Sometimes you listen to the stories, uh, what my father tells me, or maybe the reminder uh, discusses with my father when I'm there with, together with my father. Sometimes, and so we we begin to learn. I begin to learn from there, yeah, about market. So very early age. Uh, so it all went on, yeah, all the way, yeah. Uh, and of course, I did accountancy as well in New Zealand. Yeah? And even during those days, when we do our corporate finance paper, yeah. Uh, I was told by my lecturer, "Say, yeah, you are the market person." <laughs> yeah, so because she knows of my, I mean, I whenever there's some question, I, I'm able to answer everything. You know, what's the bonus issue? What's the rights issue? How do you calculate everything? I can, I already know. You know, because I already learn it by myself. You know, I don't have to be taught at all. Yeah, so I, I, so I, I became that experience uh, very early on, and of course, when I came out, I, I didn't have the chance to be in the market. Some time, yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, then a friend of mine told me, he said, "Hey, you know, you analyze so much. Uh, you should be a research analyst, lah." Mm, mm. I asked him, "What's a research analyst?" I don't even know. <laughs> there was such thing. You're talking about early nineties, yeah. Market mm. is still very blur, blur one. Nothing much was really available. Uh, and those days, when computers were still rare, yeah, people type. You know, you type reports on a typewriter, okay? Yeah, so <laughs> things were still very archived. The way things are done, lah. Uh, mm-hmm. and you don't have Busa announcement, whatever. You know? So everything was very different. Yeah. So, but I took a while. Then uh, I got a break when a friend of mine he said, "Hey, why don't you try?" Because he was working in OSK at the time. He said, "Why don't mm-hmm. you try?" I know the head of research. Give me your CV. I will show it to him, and if he's keen, he'll call you up. So, for a week later or ten days later, then uh, the office calls me and says, "Why don't you come for an interview?" Mm-hmm. So I went for an interview. Uh, I met them. Mr. Chopinpa, uh, he was the head of research yeah, at that time. And after speaking to him for an hour, he asked me when can I start. Mm. You know, so I said, give me about you know a couple of weeks to sort things out on my side. <laughs> you know, then I I will tell you when I can uh, join you. Uh, then I join join uh, OSK. Uh, it was uh, uh, yeah, it was a step that I will never regret in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it opened up everything uh, in terms of what I wanted to do, uh, what I love doing, uh, writing, analyzing, yeah, uh, 
and I was very passionate about it, you know. In fact, I remember on my first day of work, uh, Chung Tinfa, Mr. Chung, Mr. Chung gave me an ITO to uh, analyze, yeah, and for me to write, and I finished in two days. And he was like, what? He <laughs> 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 yeah, probably so, devoured the whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think I remember it was, well, the stock, I think it's gone really now. Global carriers, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, so, those were, it was a shipping company. Mm. Uh, so something I never learned before, but I I look at the prospectors, analyze, you know, start putting things in writing and everything. And within two days, I was done. Mm. But he was quite impressed, you know. So he started giving more and more, and I was happy. I don't mind clocking the hours. Mm. You know how analysts are, right? We come yes. to office like seven a.m., you know, and we are there until eight p.m. You know, I was working uh, every day without fail, all the hours you can think of. Yeah. So I loved my job uh, in that sense. Uh, it's my passion, really, yes, uh, yes. in terms of writing, in terms of analyzing. Uh, so I moved up pretty fast uh, in terms of my position in Voicegate. Although I started by just doing some IPOs, then Mr. Chung gave me plantation sector. I loved it, uh, mm. plantation, full of data, full of numbers. Mm. Right? You talk about FFP, you talk about plastic X-rage, you talk about OER, everything, you know, visitor plantations, you know, it's amazing experience. Mm. Yeah? So I loved it. Yeah, uh, looking at companies like KLK, IOI, and all that. Yeah, so then of course I moved on with other sectors. I covered the bit of properties. I covered telco sector. I covered the energy sector as well. Mm. Yeah, uh, Tanaga, YTL Power, you know, Power Tech. Those days, those are the all IPOs that came to market. I was covering them from day one. Yeah, uh, uh, and of course uh, I was promoted. I think. Pretty fast as well. I think within about third year, I was fourth year. I was with YSK. I was already promoted to senior analyst, right? Mm. Then uh, for five years in a row, I was promoted all the way uh, to head of research. I see. Yeah. Uh, but one of the, uh, I must say, uh, since we are in this podcast, I must say that uh, one of my mentor uh, in analyzing. And companies was actually Mr. Leong Huang Zi. Uh, I'm not sure whether any of you know him or any no. audience may know him. <laughs> uh, he was the head after Mr. Chung Tin Pa uh, left yeah, mm-hmm. for OSK. So Huang Zi came in uh, and he really guided, guided uh, a lot of us in I terms see. of uh, number crunching. Yeah? Mm. Uh, the way we are doing, of course, there's one way. There's all, there are many ways of crunching numbers. Correct. Uh, but his way was more systematic. Yeah. I see. Uh, so I really learned a lot from him. Was thanking, uh, and after he left, uh, of course, West Cage hired someone else. Can't remember his name. Uh, but and after that, uh, he was not really performing, and I was quite close. Uh, now, of course, Andre Tashiong on your part, and I was actually asked. In a way, I asked him. I said, "Why don't you give me a try?" You know? Yeah. Yeah, I said I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to take the position. You know? mm. So I said I want, I want it, and and give me it because at first when Hanzi left, they didn't give me that opportunity. I see. someone else. I see. Yeah, but it's only after six months when this guy couldn't perform, then they decided what to do with it. Then I offered myself, and I said, then Tashiong said, yeah, what, yeah, why don't you take it? You know, let's 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 work together. And all that. I mean, I actually had a good relationship with him mm. uh, over the years because I've been there for a while. Uh, and I've shown, 
I was able to perform and deliver. So he gave his trust on me to lead the team. We built up the team quite well. Mm. Um, and we started to gain recognition in the market as well. In I terms see. of our ability to research companies that are under research. Mm. Because for OSK, there's no point competing with the big boys like RHB or CIB, you know, talking about Maybank and Tanaga and Telecom. Everybody knows all those companies. Yeah? For OSK, those type of research is not what we want to be. La, yeah? So, Tantris Ong's idea was we must do more in terms of under-research companies. Mm. Yeah? Uh, Second-tier companies, small caps, you know? Because our OSK's uh, client base uh, very much retail. Uh, and you know, OSK is very much also into, uh, what do you call, uh, remisier, yeah? There are a lot of mm. remisiers in OSK. And those days, in the mid-90s, the broking industry was expanding. Yeah. Mm. OSK bought over a lot of other and started to expand regionally in terms of branches and everywhere. So my role became more and more important uh, in terms of uh, uh, communicating to the market, doing presentations, going for roadshows. Uh, I also helped the unit trust side when you talk about you know uh, the unit trust products and all that. I would give an overview about market, talking about what market is happening. You know where the market is going. You know why you should buy this, buy that, whatever. So I was an integral part of the whole OSK team in that sense. Uh, so, and one of the things that I think uh, everyone will know this. Uh, one of the, the biggest things that we did when we were in OSK together with the team uh, was to come up with this uh, book called the Top One Hundred Jewels. You know, small cap. Uh-huh. I don't know that's if you remember a that tradition, no, start, uh, That's a tradition that RHB keeps on continuing right now. Which it started by me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this idea actually came from Tan Sri Ong himself. I see. You know, I see. Uh, he suggested that we should do this because that will give a stamp. We will put a stamp yeah, in the market that we are the strongest in this. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it was a huge project uh, for us uh, because... Uh, it's not just a compilation of 100 companies. Yeah? Mm. We actually took the trouble, the team took the trouble uh, to visit these companies mm. yeah, all over. Mm. Yeah? Uh, and we scaled down to 100. So we can imagine we visited more than 100 companies. Yeah? Uh, so we had a standard template as to what we wanted to write, yeah? how we wanted to present the data and all that. So we compiled them into 100 uh, small cap companies and we had a big launch. Yeah? We invited everyone to come we had a big publicity. So Tan Sri was very happy about that one. You know, so that, that was really a, a, a legacy. Yeah? That I think I would say I, I, I was able to leave behind. Yeah? Mm. And it's continued still today. Uh, but I think RHP has scaled it down to 20. Only now, like, no more yeah, yeah, no longer 100. <laughs> <laughs> too much work. Uh, too much work, too much work. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so that was my peak of my career as far as uh, being in research is concerned. I see. And of course, at that age, I was still pretty young. I think I was about 38, 39, 39 thereabouts. And I just got married and I just had my daughter. She was just about six months old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being uh, head of research and being very involved in research, hours are pretty long. Uh, so I already start thinking, you know, I needed to switch my career to a certain extent. And 
the natural thing for a sell side guy to go to the buy side. Mm, yeah. Correct. <laughs> Asset so, side. <laughs> uh, so from from telling people what to buy, but you know doing it, yeah, uh, from putting your word where your mouth is, lah, basically. Yeah. So that was a break that I got, and I was beginning to uh, engage Tachikwa uh, at that time, uh, insurance. Mm. Uh, and we started to see each other a bit more, you know, start to talk. And uh, in fact, I developed a friendship rather than a relationship that's an employer-employee relationship. With him. Mm. Uh, to the extent that he offered me, he said, why don't you come and join me uh, to manage my funds at Kunya Insurance. So I thought at that point in time, actually, I wanted to carry on as research aid for another couple of years. My daughter was just born, as I said. And but this opportunity came at a time where, you know, I had to make a decision because uh, a CIO position doesn't come that often, la, Yeah. Mm, mm. If if I don't take this one, I don't know when the next one will come. Yeah. Mm. So I decided then and then I said, yeah, okay, time to move on. So that's where I joined Kunya uh, Insurance uh, as the chief investment officer. I see. Uh, so when I joined them, uh, their fund size was about. 1.5, 1.6 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a general insurance fund. Huh? This is not a, a life fund. Yeah. And all the fund is actually basically shareholders funds. Yeah. Because okay. we don't manage uh, third-party money or anything like that. It's just the shareholders funds mm. uh, to be managed. So in that sense, uh, the 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 obligation is basically to the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went in, of course, uh, the funds were not. Uh, efficiently manage uh, very much into just deposits and all that. Uh, so we started to restructure. I started to hire uh, new people as well uh, in terms of head of fixed income. I had some, in fact, two of the staff that I had, uh, they were not very much into uh, doing research or anything like that, but I taught them the way to do research. I turned them into analysts. Uh, and today they are still fund managers actually oh. uh, in the market. Yeah. Uh, well known, uh, and my fixed income uh, head of fixed income is a CIO now at Sun Insurance. Yeah, so she has also developed herself pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and we we started managing the fund pretty efficiently in that sense, uh, right until the time uh, when we wanted to uh, require himself, you know, decided to sell the business, uh, and we sold the business to M Insurance mm-hmm. yeah, in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in time, it's another uh, decision-making time for me uh, because I was given the option either to continue uh, to work at Konya Insurance under the merge entity or, of course, Tantrikwa also wanted me to follow him mm. uh, at this new entity called uh, KSK, right? Uh, so I decided because he wanted, to, he wanted me to still manage the money that you know, came about from the sale of the business itself. So I weighed the options and I told myself, I said, I'm comfortable working with him. He knows me, I know him, you know. So I said, okay, I'll just, I'll go on, you know, to work with him. Yeah. So we continued uh, from 2012 right until 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, in the last, that six years, I was with him managing at KSK. It was also quite an experience, yeah, because, um, from the horizon that I had, which was very much limited to Malaysia mm-hmm. uh, in terms of fixed income, equities, you know, uh, my, 
my horizon widened. Yeah, because at KSK, we can invest outside Malaysia. Global right? mandate lah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say you know we can go more lah. Yeah. Mm. So we started investing in other markets. You know, we started buying some products here and there. So we begin to learn about what's happening outside Malaysia as well. You know? So it helped me to also uh, grow in a certain extent mm-hmm. uh, in terms of experience and management of funds. Uh, but as time, time passed by, uh, KSK decided, of course, uh, to venture into something else, uh, not just investments, uh, managing of investments, uh, because they wanted to be a bit more into uh, something that exhibits this entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, So they went into property development. Yeah, So we bought a piece of land in Jalan Conley, just slightly below four acres. Uh, that was in 2013 or 2014, I can't remember the exact year. Uh, but I know in 2015, we launched uh, the uh, project called Acon Lake. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that's developed by KSK. Uh, so what happened here is that, of course, uh, you know, the funds that we were managing, which was you know, close to a billion, they started to you know, uh, reduce because we needed to uh, uh, plow in into the capital of the business itself, yeah, mm-hmm. through the property side. So the funds under management for us uh, started to go down the building, you know, and my role in the company was changing to a certain extent. So I decided to take a backseat. Uh, I see. To me, I find that uh, my skill sets uh, were not really uh, fully utilized uh, to a large extent. Yeah, and I thought I wanted to do something else, something different, something that I love. Mm. So, uh, I left. I left in 2018, about three years plus. Uh, and, and then, of course, when I left, uh, the question that came to my mind is that, what should I do? Mm. So the first thing that came to my mind was two things. Uh, one was writing. Uh, because when I was in OSK, uh, and even up to Punya, I used to have a column in the Star Paper. Uh, it was once a week, yeah, once a month, I think, better mistaken. Okay. And I also had a column in Sinchu, believe it. Although I don't <laughs> write, although I don't write in Mandarin, they actually translated. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but all that stopped after a while. Yeah. But uh, as you know, I can write. So I asked Star whether I could have a column. Yeah? So mm. they said, yeah, for you, Orange. Yeah, we will give you a column. Yeah? Uh, so that's where I started my column. I've already reached now coming to about 170 pieces that I've written uh, across so many subject matters, yeah, from the economy to market to cryptocurrencies to commodities to currencies to, I don't know, anything under finance. Mm. Yeah? Um, so that's what I've been doing. I also decided when I left uh, was to give back a little bit to the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started to do uh, CPE classes. Okay. So I call the continuous professional education for people yeah. who are licensed uh, in the financial market. Mm. Uh, of course, I'm a freelancer. So what I do is that I engage uh, via uh, these training agencies uh, who will market these courses. So I just I come in to do my show. Uh, they just pay me a fee. That's about it. Mm. So I started to develop some of these presentation materials, yeah, uh, which are one day. These are one day presentations, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I started with talking about economy and market. Then I started another topic, talking about how to do research and analyze companies. Uh, then I started to develop a little bit more outside uh, finance. 
uh, talk about governance issues, talk about ethical issues. Yeah. Uh, so I also have programs on corporate governance, uh, Malaysian Code of Corporate Governance. I have another program on ethics and business practices. Uh, I also have another program because um, Malaysia moved towards uh, introducing uh, Section 17A, corporate liability. Mm, correct. Uh, so I also have a program on corporate liability. Yeah. So I went around, you know, giving classes and all that. Yeah. So that was what I was doing the last few years. In between, I think my writing scope has also widened mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. I've got, I'm writing for a few others as well outside mm-hmm. uh, public uh, sphere. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm writing for one uh, consulting company uh, twice a year on economic outlook. Uh, I also recently have taken a position uh, uh, as a non-executive managing director mm. uh, in a think tank okay. a research company where we will do uh, policy research on matters uh, of interest uh, depending on the client's needs. Uh, where we can actually highlight issues uh, where the government would address. I see. Uh, maybe there are some shortcomings in certain sectors or what the government should do. So we come up with concept papers uh, on those issues. So I finished one or two uh, write-ups recently. Uh, so these are presented to the client and then hopefully presented to the government. So who normally are these kind of clients? Uh, usually what, business councils uh, or... Business are, or, mm. well, mostly they are they, they could be anyone yeah mm. uh, they could be public sector companies they could be state governments yeah? uh, they could be uh, uh, chamber of commerce mm. yeah so uh, depending on the subject matter and industry yeah uh, so it could be coming from uh, company uh, agency or even state state company yeah? so see. some of these are are being written uh, there. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, um, from your days of uh, you know chalkboarding to <laughs> days of <laughs> so probably I uh, there was a lot to pack in. I hope the audience could you know uh, uh, cram in. I'm gonna wind back a little bit and uh, and, and 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 ask a few things along the way as, uh, as you know as MJ would have, would want to ask as well. So, um, I noticed there's one thing which is uh, not prominent on uh, usual either sell set analyst or buy set analyst is actually uh, a CFA charter in, huh. your, in your career. And yeah, I want yeah. to hear your thoughts because I have I have my thoughts and uh, I, I like to hear your thoughts being in industry and then from someone who taught himself in a way to do research. What are your yeah. thoughts on it actually? I would say yes and no. Lah, yeah? uh, CFA is not a prerequisite to be an analyst. Mm. Uh, I think your account, I mean, I give you a good example. I mean, you met Chris Eng. Yeah. Yeah. He he's an engineer. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's so damn good at numbers. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So you can tell. In fact, I told him. You you can ask him. Yeah. I told him. You after one year, I told him. I said you are as good as someone who has been in the industry for five years. Wow. So he caught up five years of experience in one year. Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah, so I mean, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm saying is, and I had staff even who were CFA, with CFA credentials, but yet I have to teach them how to do. Okay. All right. Because you see, when having a charter is one thing, but knowing how to apply is another. Mm. Right. And you don't really need a CFA to 
applied, really. But I mean, of course, having a CFA is a plus, lah. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, of course, uh, it's it's a batch, it's batch of honor. Honor. <laughs> <laughs> what are some but examples, actually? But it doesn't mean that you are you are you know uh, what do you call hundred uh, percent qualified to to uh, write something or to analyze something, or you could be right or you you could be wrong. Yeah, uh, in terms of analysis itself. So to me, CFA is just a just a just a qualification. Well, what are some of these things that you have to teach? Uh, these uh, some of these CFA holders that you didn't have to teach Chris, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I think, as I said, it's a question of your ability to analyze, yeah, and to make sure that in your spreadsheet when you're doing forecasting, yeah, you have covered your angles mm. uh, in terms of the data, in terms of what is available in your spreadsheet. Yeah, mm. so sometimes, uh, I mean. Every analyst has his own ways of doing things. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, uh, but the data consistency and assumptions that are being used when you're doing forecasting must be there. Uh, it cannot be just plucked from the sky and, and say, "Oh yeah, yeah, growth is going to be ten percent." But where does that ten percent come from? Mm. Yeah. So you know, to me, at the end of it, everything must be backed by something. Uh, it can't be just plucked from the sky and say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, it's going to be X amount." <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, if you hear the stories of some people who have been my staff and all that, you, 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 I mean, there are there is of course there have been you know experiences you know because when when you are the head research uh, and time is in the essence in the morning. Yeah? Oh yes. Uh, when, when you are rushing for things and don't know what not, and if your analysis is slow, right? So that's where you know things go a little bit out of hand, lah. Yeah. yeah. And so we need to make sure that everyone is on the ball uh, when it comes to delivering in terms of uh, morning timely timely basis. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But going back to the issue about CFA, I, I, I mean, if anyone wants to take CFA, go ahead. There's no, nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, of course, hopefully you pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard the CFA level yeah, this year was really horrible. Twenty twenty percent. Yeah. Twenty two percent. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. So it's not easy, yeah. It's a tough course, uh, and but having the CFA doesn't make you a perfect person as far mm. as analytical skills are concerned. Yeah, uh, and I can't remember whether this was a student who had passed or was actually at level three. I can't remember. Yeah, but I had one lady, and I, and I tell you, uh, for those who have worked under me, they will tell you that you know. Going to an interview with me is not easy, <laughs> uh, because when you go interview with me, uh, I would ask you to not only talk about yourself, talk about your experience, talk about why you want to be an analyst. I will give you a test, right? About how you're going to analyze the company, mm. right? In terms of, it's just like when I mentioned to you just now, Mr. Chung, you know, yeah. gave me a prospectus to analyze on my first day, so I'll give a prospectus. To my staff, you know, go and analyze and tell me in one hour what do you think. All right, do some writing. Yeah, so you be surprised. Yeah, saying something that you want to be an analyst, but actually doing it, yeah, uh, is a totally different thing. So you will see that there are people who are total failure when it comes to that test. Uh, so I end up, you know, I mean, I was maybe a bit young and a bit more, uh, what do you call, uh, 
uh, high tempered whatever you know or I don't know <laughs> so I would pass on some comments and say you know nasty things a little bit you know I say how could you 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 are I mean if you are qualified with certain qualification and you come to me and you give me crap right you know I I find it you know you like a, you you there's one I told the the, the person who came to the interview I said you are a disgrace to the university that you represent. No, it's true because if you are really who you are in terms of your qualification, you can you shouldn't be producing what you produce. I mean, a simple questions, yeah. Yeah. And this is just not on paper. Even discussing, I asked someone, "What is a PE?" They couldn't. What is a PE? They couldn't explain. Oh my gosh! <laughs> How does one become an analyst who doesn't know what a PE is all about? Yeah. Right. So, you know. I mean, I can't take it, lah. So <laughs> I think Pankaj, what you just summarize is you're trying to uphold a standard when these people who come to get yeah. a job or ask for a job doesn't even uphold their standards. Yeah, themselves, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, so you already, free. I mean, the first cut you already out already, lah. You know, yeah. so to start, Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing, especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses slash SIB. So to me, I mean, if you are passionate about something, you must have not only just the skill set in terms of qualification, but the passion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, if I was a 12-year-old kid, I knew what was PE. And you, a 30-year-old with a CFA, still don't know what a PE is all about. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow, I <laughs> MJ, you know when you was... You'd be surprised there are people who take CFA, yeah, or even any exam for that matter. Uh, they pass for the sake of passing, yeah, but not knowing what it means, really. Yeah? Wow. So you, there are people like that. Yeah. I, mean, I don't doubt it. Yeah. So it's sad. I would say it's sad. Yeah. You know when you were reciting that story, so um, I'm pretty sure you know Tan Tengku, and yeah, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you know of his character and his uh, yeah, yeah. frank frankness, right? Yeah, yeah. So there was a video that MJ showed me about an inter uh, a, a competition where a group of uh, students were uh. presenting A Asia. Uh, and and um, they were <laughs> they had a price target. They had a price target, uh, and uh, there was an intrinsic value, oh. which which they plucked from a certain website. Uh, and, and Tan Bu was still generous enough to try to guide them towards what's the method of your valuation, <laughs> your intrinsic value. <laughs> MJ, maybe you want to continue the story. I I, I just no. Bas- the basically, story. there's this website called. Uh, Simply Wall Street online, right? Mm. It does this uh, like AI algorithm thing where they ah. plug, 
historical numbers and then they just kind of churn out a intrinsic value for every stock. Oh, so, so it's a data driven kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, it's pure pure data kind of thing. So so these uh, guys, I, I the guy behind you will not agree. Yeah, for, for sure. <laughs> Definitely no, man. So, so what, what they did was, uh, you know, I think they gave like a price target of like, with all, they're just giving some reasons and then oh, it's a, it's a six ringgit stock, basically, they said, right? Oh, yeah. God. So, so uh, Mr. Tan was like, um, yeah, how do you get this number? And it's like, well, we, we got this uh, according to Simply Wall Street. So actually, uh. actually, uh, based on the reaction, right, I could tell that uh, Mr. Tan didn't know what they were referring to. Oh, yeah. okay. But we knew, so we burst out hey. laughing because it's literally a copy and paste. <laughs> it's, 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 for example, it's, if, it like, it's, if one of your analysts just say, I think the price target is this, yeah. the reason is because uh, CIMB analyst X said it was this. You would, you would throw the report back to him, right? I would assume, right? That is not uh, justifiable. Yeah. Actually, the copying part was not bad, but if you copy, and then you put in your own opinion on why that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's fine, you know. But you know, when Mr. Tan was like, okay, let's just say simply Wall Street said this number, right? Uh, could you come out in your in a way he was trying to say, could you come out with your own yeah. terms? Yeah. Why do you think the valuation? Yeah, correct, correct. These guys were lost. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, mean, they, I don't think so. They could because yeah. you know how they came about in the first place. Yeah. So they have no clue actually. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, I have a question, right? So when yeah. when when you were thrown that prospectus, right, uh. to analyze, uh, what was the process like for yeah. you? Because yes. I know every every investor, every analyst has their own process, like you say, right? They have their own quirks and all that. So what yeah. were, what were the first few questions you were asking, and how were you beginning to essentially construct your your work, your thesis, lah? Yeah. So okay. So. In any company that you're analyzing, if you want to start to build a spreadsheet model, yeah, it's of course dependent on the variables, right? Yes. Yeah. So when you go into the numbers, uh, for example, I give you like the first prospectus that was thrown to me. I think it was this company, Global Carriers, company so couple really. Okay. All right. So they are shipping line. All right. So shipping line, of course, uh, what are the the variables? Yeah. Basically, you look at. What is their date weight tons and how many ships they have? What's our revenue? You know, uh, you look at the numbers, analyze them, look at the margins, uh, looking at their cost structure, what are the variables? Yeah, then from there, of course, they have some forward-looking statements in yep. terms of their uh, guide, guide, uh, guidelines to the industry, I don't know what not. Uh, so from there, you start to build up your spreadsheet, yeah? Uh, Normally for IPO, you only forecast for that year. You, know, you, mm -hmm. you, you typically try to take what the company is telling you. So the, uh, the forecasting uh, uh, capability beyond the current year is not really required yeah? because it's just like an IPO information sheet yeah? for clients and all that. Yeah? It's not really a, a detailed analysis of a company that you're analyzing fundamentally. Like for example, if you're talking about uh, KLK, if you analyze KLK, then you got to know a lot of things. You got to know the planted area, what is the virtual area, how much is virtual, how much is not, how much is coming to maturity, what is the CPO price assumption, what is the extraction rate, you know, everything. You got to look at the margins uh, historically and then try to forecast what is the 
few years. And of course, if you have to forecast it, your price itself, which is another art altogether. That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> a lot of assumptions. Yeah. So, a lot of things are all based on assumptions. So, for this one, global chip, uh, global carriers, uh, I remember the guideline, the guided, um, what do you call, uh, data was already provided in the prospectus itself. Yeah. So, most, most of it is followed there. It's just a question of how are you going to value it? Hmm. Right. And of course, valuation, you know, is another art. Yeah. Whether it's price to book, PE, and then you start comparing with your peers and don't know, you know, you say, oh, this company is 10 times PE, so this company should be at least 10 times PE or 9 times PE, maybe slight discount because of size, la, whatever. La. Yeah, so you you start to do all the analytical work uh, from there, yeah, in terms of valuation perspective. Different industries are measured differently. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, um, property, you know. Uh, they either measure on price to book or price to NAV, yeah. Yep. Uh, because I, NAV, of course, again, uh, uh, realizable net asset value of the assets that they have, yeah. So you do a price to NAV calculation. Uh, then you talk about banks, you typically value by price to book or use a dividend discount model approach. Uh, if you talk about uh, most sectors are PE based anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, PE is, of course, is a simplified way of doing a valuation uh, because actually by right any valuation is always a discounted cash flow yes right by right by right yeah uh, but nobody goes beyond three years to forecast so far hey you see because you don't have the ability to uh, comprehend assumptions beyond a certain years yeah because after certain years it becomes your good your guess as good as mine yeah yeah how, how are you going to forecast 10 years forward for a manufacturing company, let's say furniture, you know, of course, everybody assumes growth, 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 growth all the way. You don't know, yeah. right? Things can turn the other way around, you know, economic crisis, you know, whatever. So assumptions are only valid maybe one, two years. Uh, beyond that, very difficult. Discounted cash flow can only be used for a company which has uh, a definite lifespan, like your tool companies, your water companies. Yeah, you can do it for IPPs. Yeah. Even, I'm sure you have seen it. Uh, some analysts use it for recently, you talk about gloves. Yeah. Right? Actually, some are discounted ask. cash flow. Yeah. Come on, la, you can't use discounted cash flow for gloves. Yeah. Right? So many, manufa- assumption, so many assumptions. Right? You have to assume the capacity, la, utilization, la, ASP, la, you know? Demand, too many la, variables. Support, too many variables. Yeah, yeah. And that variable, last week also can be different than this week. Right. So how are you going to forecast 10 years forward? Yeah. And you can't forecast just two years or three years and say, oh, this is my discounted cash flow. Doesn't You can't do discounted cash flow for two years and say, this, this, is, this is discounted cash flow. It's wrong. <laughs> you have to do a certain time frame. But right. that time frame is only suitable for certain business, yeah. not for manufacturing. Yeah. You know, so, so you go back to PE. Right? A lot of things go back to PE. Yeah? So I think that's that's the way, you know, how market appreciates the yeah. Touching mm, mm. uh, 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 on this, uh, actually, it was a question that I will be asking later. But uh, since you already <laughs> brought it up, since you already brought it up, um, I'm glad because you one of the articles I can't remember which one it says something about valuations and art, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. I think right, that was valuation. the glove one. Yeah, yeah the glove one. And uh, I, I hear you loud and clear because like companies like Yinsen, MISC, they've got a charter rate. You yeah. Already, there's already booked in 15 years, 25 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Then you use a DCF, it's very clear, very easy. Yeah, clear, right? very clear, yes. Very clear, very easy. Yeah. But when it comes to gloves, um, as you rightly pointed out, ASP is already one variable. 
yeah. manufacturing capacity another variable. Then the other yeah. thing is that the opaqueness, and I would say this, I think uh, for almost all the glove companies, the opaqueness of their clientele. Because they uh. will never, they, they, the disclosure, I don't know whether you have agreed with me and me, Pankaj, I'm pretty sure you read all the reports. The opaqueness on their clientele and the segmentation of whether they are selling to GP groups, whether they're selling directly to hospitals and all that. You don't know and you don't know when the lump is going to happen. You know, Sometimes there's a buying cycle, three years, then you have a glove buying cycle, the GP groups will buy. How do you, what would be the best method in your sense? If you say that DCF is not a method, probably the closest is PE. What, what would be yeah. a better method? I think, uh, I think yeah, it has to go back to the PE method. Lah, yeah? Because okay. I think you look back in the history of gloves, they have always been used uh, to be valued based on PE. I see. Yeah? Uh, no reason to use DCF, really. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, of course, the question of how, which year yeah, PE yes. are you going to use? Yes. All right? Okay. There's the other troubling question because I think I also addressed it in my articles. Mm. I think last year, July, I wrote uh, one article of valuation uh, mm. because to me, you cannot be using peak earnings and mean PR, for example, whether it's 20 or 25 times, and you multiply it with peak earnings, you get a balloon oh, valuation. Of course, of course. Of course. And so that's why you see some analysts can say, oh, it can, this particular stock can be worth 100 ringgit or whatever, I don't know. And so <laughs> it doesn't make sense, yeah. you know? So I've actually written uh, this in my writing as well. I said the way to look at it, you have to take out the peak years, mm. right? The peak years are not are not reflective of the actual business. Normalize value. it, lah. Just normalize yeah, normal. the years. No, you 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 ignore that. Ah, ignore ignore the peak okay. years. Okay. So you know, twenty twenty one is peak. Twenty twenty two, it will take. Twenty twenty two, it will taper down. Twenty twenty three probably is normalized. Yeah. Okay, you can take twenty twenty three, no problem. All yeah. right, based on the assumption that you have used because. You have only put the ASP down to like what I don't know thirty dollars per per thousand pieces, pieces yeah. or whatever, All right? So you only put it down, yeah, and you take that earnings, you multiply uh, by that mean PR, whether it's eighteen or twenty times or whatever. Then how do you account what is earned in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two? Very simple, dividend dividend, mm. right? So if mm. you if you have a company that earns let's say one ringgit per share this year. And it's going to pay uh, 50% of it as dividend. So take that 50 cents as a value. Mm. Then next year, let's say the earnings is going to drop to 50 cents per share, but dividend is going to be 25 cents. Take the 25 cents as value. 50 cents plus 25 cents, 75 cents. Of course, you can also discount it if you want. Mm. Right? And you take the valuation based on the earnings per share in 2023 multiplied by 18 or 20 times, which is the mean PR anyway. Yeah. Right? So then you add that to the dividends that you're receiving. Then you I get see. your fair value. I see. So you, you won't see, I mean, I'm sure you realize, uh, in fact, not one house, probably every house, they were chasing valuation on glove stocks on the up on the uptrend, all the way up. And, and then, then on the went, down, and the then down went, just... no, no, they went beyond first. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then only on the way down, you know, they start chasing it down. Yeah, exactly. And, so... and, and <laughs> I mean, I even commented privately with some people. You know, I said, how could this analyst, you know, hold his, hold his head up or whatever. He keep changing his valuation matrix, all right? By one way was 
playing around with the terminal growth. Oh, yes. The terminal growth went from 1% to 4%, then to down to 3%, 2%, then back to 1%, now it's back to 2%. So you play around with the number. Another analyst was also doing discounted cash flow, completely ignores the discounted cash flow for the first two years and takes from 2023 onwards. Oh, my. <laughs> so I... So to me, I don't know, you know, I say you guys, everybody is just trying to justify where the market price is. That's how they are valuing it. They were not looking at objectively in terms of valuing a company. I mean, today also we are already seeing some, this morning, I saw a report. I don't want to mention the booking company. Yeah, uh, I saw a report on CITOS. Okay. And... It's an initiating coverage uh, from the broker. Okay. And I was like, I said, oh my God, where is this coming from? <laughs> Value the company at two ringgit and 17 cents, right? Based on a 2.6 times PE to growth. Multiple. 2.6 times PE to growth. You know what's PE to growth, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And you know how the 2.6 came about? Is the median of, uh, I think it's the, the analysts use different sectors, financial services, uh, what global, I don't know what they call it. Uh, <laughs> I forgot just now I was texting my friend. Huh? I say it doesn't make sense to value a company based on this. I mean, this is a credit rating agency. How can you compare, how can you compare with uh, financial institutions? Yeah, financial institutions. Uh, uh, and, and, what rating agencies like, or even mar- IHS market? I don't know. What, I don't know. I mean, please. <laughs> and you compare one of the other compares it with my G. Hey, hello, my G is doing something else. <laughs> you know, and you know, if you take two point six times PEG, and then you take, you say the company is worth two seventeen, and then calculate back. Oh my God, this analyst is valuing Maxitos at sixty five times multiple next year's earnings and 55 times based on 2023 earnings. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, and these are, in a way, you see, the, the, the I, 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 my, myself and MJ, we're never from high finance. Uh, well, uh, I was in oil and gas, MJ. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So, so we always view sometimes when we, when we look at reports being written, right? Sometimes we, initially we feel pretty dumb, uh, Pankash, because like, <laughs> All, all this jargon, all this, I like. Oh, you haven't uh, come to, this is just still public companies, you know. You haven't yeah. come to private companies' valuation yet. Oh. All the startups. Oh. Yeah. yeah. They want another, another, you know, elephant. <laughs> you, you saw what I wrote about ride sharing companies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. All yeah. loss making. You have to dream a little, Pankash. You have, where's, your, where's your vision? You need to dream, dream. <laughs> You need to dream. I can imagine. Bit. I mean, Uber. If you think Uber, they they've been around for the last ten years. Yeah. And for the last ten years, they've been loss making. Yeah. Their losses is already to the tune of what twenty two billion something like that. How? Grab loss is already. I mean, they just reported another quarterly loss, which means that cumulatively, Grab's losses is close to twelve billion. Mm. Twelve billion dollars. Mm. Mm. Right. How how does a forty billion valuation justify? <laughs> Lost leader. You see, you see a lot of a lot of stock, a lot of uh, startup. The name of the game is about business strategy. Correct. Right. It's about 
either you're expanding into new markets or you're coming into uh, new products. Mm. Because that's the only way to scale yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And for you to get new money, all right, to expand, to continue to expand. But whether you are loss making or not doesn't matter. All right. So to me, it's a game. Right. It's a game to the extent that sooner or later the music will stop. Yes. Right. And you'll say that, hey, how long can I go on expanding? Because at the end of it, if you are a businessman, what is your what is your objective of a businessman? Make money. Is to yeah. make money. Yeah. You don't make money by another investor coming into your company by valuing the company. I mean, you make paper profit, lah, but you yeah. don't make profit, you know. Yeah. Unless 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 the new investor come in, buy your shares. Mm. Uh, then okay, you exit. Alright? Then you say, you know, thank you very much, bye-bye. You know, sayonara. I, yeah, sayonara, <laughs> I made my money, bye-bye. You know? Yeah. But if you are still in the game, new guy comes in, oh, says my company now worth X dollar. Alright? Or three times more. But so what? You, you, you don't see anything, it's only on paper, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now it's, it's, what, la, related to this last one before I move on to the it's a very interesting topic what are your thoughts on Shopee then because you talk about P C A C yeah C it's it's you know multiple high value same, uh, same same I think it's same. the same story okay. uh, e-commerce yeah but even even then it, it has to come to a point it can reach Alibaba status mm. right I mean you know Alibaba is profitable yeah. right it has to reach that if mm. it doesn't uh, valuation is just, uh, you know, sky high and, and it will just fall off, la, you know. But because, <laughs> I mean, you, you can you even see, la, you know, there's been, um, Indonesia has seen some startups being yeah. listed. What? Uh, it's a name company. Bulapa, is it? Uh, bu- 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 something I forgot. Bukala, Bukalapa, uh, sorry. Uh, Bukalapa, yeah. So they are, they are also listed. Yeah. Big IPO, 1.5 yeah. billion raised. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but of course, they are also not speaking. Yeah. Uh, we have seen Gojek and Traveloka uh, merge as well, right? Yes. Uh, 18 billion valuation, if I'm not mistaken. But again, you know, are they making money? Hmm. Yeah, even our guys, Kasem. Yeah, Kasem. Oh, I think, what was the valuation? I, I saw it was... Million. Yeah, I saw your eye watering. One million US dollars. Eye watering, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, you ask yourself, where is this all going? Yeah. So to me, it's very simple. Over the years, since the global financial crisis, central banks have been busy printing money. Correct. And there's too much of money around the world. Yeah. A lot of this money is going into all these private equity investors, uh, private equity funds. You know, who then invest. Uh, into all these startups, you know? So the game in startups is very simple. You know, you may invest in 10, 15, 20 companies. At the end of it, one of them become unicorn enough, you know? Yeah. 19 others you can just write off. Yeah. Yeah. So, great. I mean, I, I know this topic, we could go on and on, but yeah. I have to wind, yeah, I have to wind <laughs> back to November 2019. Oh, God. And, yeah, that's the, I think it's the first article, so I think it's memorable for you. Uh, uh, in a new really? Yeah, no, yeah. no, I think my first article was in June 2018. June 2018. When I yeah. scroll all the way down, that was the uh, last, last maybe one. Maybe you saw. couldn't see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in November 2019, you wrote something very interesting and I think we're coming to that period. So it says, 
buy in November and be prosperous, which is similar uh, to the adage of sell in May and go. Yeah, it's a cycle. So you listed four core reasons. Traditional window dressing period. Yeah. Uh, mist of quality reporting season. Yeah, uh, general effect of the next year's market yeah, and positive yeah. momentum. So yeah. let's just say that all is somewhat repeatable and sustainable yeah. for most of the years. But yeah. a black swan event like COVID, yeah. How how does that four core uh, reasons does it still hold true in a way? It will always hold true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but of course, like you rightly pointed out, when there are uh, events beyond your horizon in terms of what is predictable, mm. COVID obviously is not predictable. Yeah. It's a it's a once in a century event. Yeah. And we will see different type of events coming in in future anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, today you're talking about, you know, the, the Chinese property. Uh, uh, Evergrande, yeah. We, Evergrande. we just shot a video, yeah. video this morning actually about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's close to a black swan divide as far as China is concerned. You know, Correct. 300 billion liability, you know. Yeah. So all these things will uh, continue to weigh on markets all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's a question of how much market reacts to it, mm. how bad it is. Yeah, like COVID when it first started, uh, market reacted very fast mm. in the beginning, but mm. it also rebounded very fast. Mm. Uh, and, and if you look at cycles, especially the US market, if you remember, the US market went from bear market to bull market in three days. <laughs> yeah, during that's how much. fast it rebounded. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of investors were also caught off guard. Uh, because they never thought that the market could recover that much, mm. uh, all because of pets, you know, printing machine la, Yeah, uh, and as I said, we have too much money. And today, uh, the issue is uh, going into November. We are coming to November or yeah. going to twenty twenty two, whatever. Uh, market is actually worried about what mm. the Fed is going to do, mm. right? Because uh, today the Fed's balance sheet is about eight and a half trillion dollars. Uh, it may go up uh, for all you know. To about nine trillion thereabouts, yeah. Or in fact, I thought it was going to go up to ten trillion, even. <laughs> yeah. But they have to wind down. Yeah. Yeah. So when are they going to start to wind down? So market is concerned about this. And there's one chart that I always share when I'm doing my presentation material. It's the co-relationship between S and P five hundred mm-hmm. and the rest of the uh, the the size of the central bank's balance sheet. Ah. And if you take over the last 10 years, it's just like that. I see. All right? So you know for, for a fact that if, not only Fed, uh, but perhaps uh, the rest of the central banks as well uh, start to unwind, you know, or to withdraw the support uh, of buying, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, treasuries. Bonds, yeah, bonds or treasuries and all that, uh, it will cause disruption in the market. I think there's a yeah. term for it, right, Pankaj? Ta- ta- taper, taper. Ta- taper, tapering. So basically, <laughs> market is talking about tapering. Tapering yeah. tantrum is basically market is worried. La. That's yeah, why it's exactly. become tantrum, la, you know? Yeah. It's like a two-year-old kid, you know? Yeah. Uh, tantrum because, you know, he can't get his toy. So same thing. Uh, market goes into t- tantrum, uh, worrying uh, of what the Fed is going to do. And it's not only that. Uh, people already start talking about the Fed going to raise interest rates. Uh, chances are, Rates will start to rise uh, by December next year. Mm. Yeah, uh, earlier thought was twenty twenty three, but now I think the odds are coming down to twenty twenty two. 
the Fed is meeting this week, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, we will get some guidance uh, in terms of what they're going to do. Uh, but going back to the question, uh, the four uh, pillars uh, in terms of why November is a good buying time. Uh, in fact, just was it last week, the week before, I wrote about the recent ended quarterly results. And what is interesting is that if you look at earnings momentum mm. for Malaysia, I mean, at this point in time, yeah, I mean, things can change as well. Um, earnings growth this year, take out the gloves, yeah, because gloves are gyrating up and down. Earnings growth this year is close to 30% because of the base effect from 2020. Yeah. But earnings growth in 2022 uh, is still a good 15, 16%. Wow. Yeah. So if you take that, the market is still cheap. Mm. In fact, Malaysian market is so cheap that we have been left behind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, if you look at Malaysian market, I, I always say this, yeah, Malaysian market trades at a premium to Asia X Japan by about mm. 15 to 20%. But mm. today we are trading at 15% discount mm. to Asia X Japan. Reason being, of course, politics is one. Yeah. Right? Uh, we used to be a politically stable market. Yeah. yeah. But since 2018, you know, our politics situation has has changed, yeah, to the extent that uh, policy making is very difficult. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, so when you talk about investors, investors want certainty. Investors want something that they know what's coming. You know. Uh, so if government keep changing, uh, you have difficulty in forming policies and taking the country forward. Mm. Yeah. That is why our growth has been rather stagnant. Yeah. Uh, it'd be tough. Uh, for growth to be, you know, as strong as what we wish to, uh, if policy making is not strong, yeah. So I'm glad actually to a certain extent. I also wrote about this that uh, the opposition has come forward in joining hands with the government uh, to say that, well, look, we will support you, uh, but let's do all these reforms, blah blah blah, you know, uh, which is good. Yes. Right? To me, it's good. Because you are trying to put the politics side, yeah. right? Try to put, you know, put Malaysia back into the the path of growth, right? Come up with policies to address issues that we have. Yes. Yeah. For example, I'm not sure whether you know. Uh, if you look, just I think it was last month, when Department of Statistics released some data in terms of salaries and wages, mm. our income has depleted. Yes. Yeah. Our, I mean, if you look at the median wages today, it's just yeah. barely above 2,000 ringgit. Correct. How do you survive in this country? Yes. All right. We need to have policies to raise the living standards of our people. All right. Yeah. Raise living wages, raise uh, minimum wages, right? All this has significant impact to the economy as a whole. Because today, affordability is an issue. A lot of people cannot afford, cost of living is high. Right, we are not being paid enough, you know, and they have been affected because of the lockdowns and don't know what not. Right, so the government needs to step up, yeah, to make sure that you know Malaysians are again uh, back in terms of you know income and wages rising. Yeah? yeah, in fact, we have lost about three or four years in terms of our 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 income level because yeah. suddenly we are down like ten to percent. Right, so policy making is very important for market. Yes. And there are two things that's coming uh, this 
next next week as well as next month. Uh, next week is the tapering of the 12th uh, Malaysia plan. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that will paint some picture in terms of the direction. And next month we have budget 2022. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad uh, that the Minister of Finance uh, have taken the heat uh, that we need to raise the debt ceiling. Oh yes. Uh, I I spoke about this as well that we need to raise it. Yeah. So we are talking about sixty five percent now. So that will give some room uh, for us to spend uh, rightfully in the thing in the places where we need to. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and to help Malaysians and businesses, you know, to be back on their feet again. Yeah. Because I think COVID has really taken away two years of growth. Oh yes. Uh, for the economy and for people. Yeah. We have been set back because of COVID. Yeah, yeah. So, I feel that uh, the government has the capability if it wants to. Uh, you know, and if both opposition and the government can work together, it's good. It's good for the market. Yeah. Just unwinding a little bit. So, we talked about a little bit about government policy. Not a little bit, a lot about government policies. And here, here comes the conundrum. Uh. Politics and policies, while they are separate, is somewhat entwined. Would you agree? Yeah. With that, right. Yeah, yeah. Because um, populist measure can always thwart policy making because policy yeah. making are always a little bit more medium to long term. Correct. How can a government function more effectively in coming out with policies? And I, I maybe I use some context when I made that statement or uh, question. Mm. You look at the Penang State Government when they came out with you know creating. Uh, the in a way the silicon corridor for Malaysia. I think that has worked well. If not, today I doubt that Malaysian exports will you know majority come from the semicon industry. Oil, gas, and oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, setting up of you know, I I was very privileged to meet an advisor to the prime minister on ETP six, uh, which is ah. oil. Yeah, and and it was he 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 said that you know Malaysia's palm oil research is among the best in the world, and yet we are not you know, being highlighted or getting bad rep. So here comes my question. Um, mm. um, is there a way that regardless of the political uh, movement of the day, that a government can function to uh, moderate and to come up with policies medium or long term, regardless of the change of guard? Is, is there a possibility in your opinion? In, in theory, it's possible. Okay. In practice, it's not. La. <laughs> <laughs> Simple answer. But okay. you rightly pointed out the problem in Malaysia, I think, especially in the last few years, is that politicians being politicians, uh, they would want to secure their position mm. yeah, where they are today and in the next election. They want to make sure that they get re-elected the next election. Mm. All right? So they, like you say, populist measures. Mm. All right? Just to please the uh, voting public, whatever you call it. Correct. Yeah, so they don't come up with policies that are long-term. Yeah. Yeah, that, that looks at issues that will help the nation to forge ahead, for example. All right. Uh, I mean, I mean, we are actually, to a certain extent, unlucky. Yeah? We always like to compare with Singapore. Yeah. Because Singapore is a world-class city and a yeah. world-class uh, way of managing the economy. Yeah. Right? But when we compare to Singapore, we are... We are like always being left out, yeah. But they do things, they look 10, 20, 30 years ahead. They don't look at two years, three years, five years ahead. Yeah. Right? But we the other way around. Yeah. We only try to do something just to secure 
the politician's position. Yeah. Uh, so that is wrong. And that's where uh, the civil servants actually come in. All right. Uh, because they are the one really holding the fault. Yeah. Yeah. Politicians are just figureheads. Correct. At the ministerial level, you know. And of course, uh, the other issue is that we, we don't put the right people in the right places. All right. Because if you talk about, let's say, if you are a, uh, if you want to put someone who's in charge of education, you know, you don't put someone who has, I mean, you need someone who has that kind of thinking capability <laughs> la, to into the education ministry, right? Yeah. Right people in the right boxes, right? The problem in our politicians is that we appoint people as ministers for the sake of appointing without knowing whether they can do the job, right? Yeah, because at the end of it, policy making has to be from the civil service actually, yes. from the director general, from the the whole structure of people, but, right? But the struggle is, Pankaj, is that the director generals themselves, I mean, my, my parents serve in a ministry. You know, it's so funny that you brought up Ministry of Education. My father was a 36 <laughs> years of service in the civil service in Ministry of Education. And during my father's time, it was, I, I consider it the epitome of uh, civil uh, service. Okay. When, when you had uh, very high caliber officers that were yeah. taking for the nation. And that correct, has eroded because you've got senior civil servants being appointed because they were politically connected. And that's uh, where the problem comes. Yeah, that, that's yeah. where my... I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. 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 So structurally, everything is wrong now, basically. Yes. yes. Right? Uh, so how do we change things? Right? So this is where, uh, you know, we, we need to have a reset button to a certain mm. extent. It's not just education. It's just not about policies. Actually, it's about a lot of things. Yes. Right? I talk about wage structures. About tax policies uh, in one of my writings as well, right? Because we are not taxing people enough, right? The I'm all for GST actually. <laughs> I am all for GST. Well, GST is one. Uh, GST yeah. is just one part of the equation. Yeah? yeah. But at the end of it, if, if I give you some numbers, you'd be shocked, mm-hmm. right? For example, on average, I think it's only about fifteen percent of Malaysians, whether individuals or companies, yeah, that pay taxes, only fifteen percent. So what does the rest of eighty-five percent do? Right? So the thing is, because our wages are so low, mm. they are not even, our median wages is 2,000 ringgit per month. Half the population already out of even paying a single tax. Mm. Right? So, and we give too much reliefs. There are a lot of reliefs that we give to individuals, companies, you know, we give them tax-free, you know, but we are losing out because if you look at our tax collection as a percentage of GDP, it's only about 11%. Mm. It's very low. We used to be 20%. Mm. No, it has come down so much that we don't have enough revenue. So when we don't have enough revenue, what happens? Borolo? Mm. So we've been borrowing for the last donkey years, 24 years, right? We will continue to borrow, I don't know for how long more, right? So we need to change all this in terms of our structure. Uh, we have structural issues, yeah? In terms of tax, in terms of wages, education, everything, all right? But everything has the political element over it. Mm. Uh, this is the problem. Yeah? So politicians need to think far. Yeah? I mean, you have, for example, uh, the 12 Malaysia plan. Okay, la, five years, not long enough there, yeah? but I mean, when Tun Mahathir, when he was uh, Prime Minister mm. the first time, he talked about Vision 2020. He talked about 20, 30 years ahead. Mm. All right? So that is the kind of vision you need. You want to know where Malaysia want to be in the next 10, 20 years. 
what field are we going to excel in the market, for example? Why is Indonesia attracting more FDIs than we are? Mm. All right, we have to ask all these questions, right? Why, why is this that? What are we losing out? Why do we have brain drain, for example? Yeah. Why our top students prefer to study in, in, in UK or in Australia or in the US or even in Singapore rather than Malaysia? And most of these people, when they leave, they don't come back. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we are losing out of talent or people. All right. And then we close the door by introducing policies that we don't want people. I went to H. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you tell people, oh, okay, uh, sorry. You know, unless you are X amount, then you can come in. So a lot of things are done, you know, not right. Uh, to me, yeah. The way things are done, we need to change. We need to. Uh, restructure. We need someone who can vision Malaysia forward. We are in 2020. Someone will come up, come up with a policy to say where Malaysia would be in 2050. Mm. Don't talk about 2025. Too short. 2050. Where Malaysia would be? What is our strength? Yeah. Where? What is the industry that Malaysia will thrive in 30 years time? I see. So, speaking MJ, of that, you have a I, yeah, speaking of that, I think that uh, you raised a good point about the long-term planning that you see being exhibited in areas like Singapore and all that. And of course, one thing that the the the, the key difference I think between Malaysia and Singapore, uh, apart from the long-term thinking, is the fact that uh, that there's a lack of political competition. Correct. So the reason that they can plan is because they they don't have to spend the income, they don't have to spend time that. Yeah, and so in uh, I, I think that's where Malaysia is at right now where there isn't a, a, a clear winner, right? Because uh, the opposition has withstood itself, but then because of the 2018 election, uh, yeah. the the UMNO stronghold actually kind of shaved off, right? A lot of them yeah. went to pass, for example, right? Yeah. And so you're getting this uh, situation of, you know, almost like this parliament kind of yeah we have a hung parliament situation actually we do have really yeah, yeah. so I think uh, that's the issue right would you agree with me that's yeah I agree I agree uh, but this is this is a problem I, I don't think so just Malaysia but perhaps even in other countries as well yeah uh, politicians will try to secure their position uh, you know not only for the term that they are serving but the next term mm. yeah uh, and in fact if you look at the memorandum of understanding uh, between opposition and government, they talk about one of the things is that to limit the term of the prime minister to 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that actually is a way to tell the prime minister, look, you don't have much time. <laughs> Get cracking. <laughs> Get cracking. Yeah. <laughs> Start thinking forward. Yeah. But to me, it's very simple. If you are a politician, if you do good, people will vote for you. Yeah. Right. So you must come up with policies that's good for the people that will lift them up in terms of their living standards, their income, grow the economy. All right, think long term. All right, don't think short term. Don't just think about giving the next guy 500 ringgit, you know, that's not yeah. the solution. Yeah, 500 is not going to bring you very far. Yeah, it's not going to bring, but I know it's going to buy you that one vote, but, yeah. you know, you, you got to start thinking about yeah. the country, about yes. the nation, yeah. not just about one individual. Great. Um, MJ, any more questions? No, no, no. Go yeah, I'm going to switch into, uh, segue into uh, something very related to this, but uh. more quantifiable, which is um, 
this article you wrote in December 2019 about profiting from concessions. <laughs> ah. Okay, so this is where, you know, things like, I think most normal individuals in Malaysia don't even understand this thing called off-balance sheet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when they look at the budget, they look at all the, 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 yeah. the candies and all the sweeteners, right? But so let, let's break it down. So you covered this thing called private-public partnership and mm. you, you gave it in a form of either a privatization or a private mm. finance mm. initiative. Mm. And um, one example you gave was this uh, Gagasan Nadi Chumalang, yeah. the rationale behind it. So it was seen as a very lucrative contract because it's long term. Yeah, correct. And even when you when uh, Gagasan Nadi actually flips it, they actually uh, can make money from the sale. And the guy who buys it eventually can still make money because the concession, the way the concession is being constructed. So, in this game of flipping, maybe you can reiterate again who are the likely losers and how can we improve on this? Because eventually, it's us kind of us paying for it, right, Akash? Oh, very uh, interesting question. Yeah, because at the end of it, of course, it's all about valuation. Yeah, uh, how, how much do you value a concession? Mm. And at the end of it, it's a question of, uh, of course, the the first guy who, who gets it, uh, you know, he gets a fifteen or twenty year concession of. I think this one is about some. Gasan Nadi was the polytechnic because I came from yeah, polytechnic. Correct. Teaching yeah. Yeah, some yeah. hostels or don't know what not. Correct, correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they get a contract. Yeah, they build the facility and then they get lease payments from the government. That's like right. That. Yeah, that's that's the overall structure. La. And why the government go about doing this way is because it cannot strain its own balance sheet. That's right. In the sense that uh, it doesn't want to spend the money. Yeah. Mm. So it goes into this private finance scheme uh, with the with a private company. Yeah. The private company gets a concession. The private company goes to the bank or whatever, raise funds or bonds, yeah, and builds the facility, all right, and collects payments, yeah, from the government. Uh, so the model is where the cash flow comes in, like, discounted cash flow. Yes. Uh, this one got discounted cash flow. Exactly. Okay? So, <laughs> so with discounted cash flow, you know whether this company is going to make money or not and what is the valuation. Mm. Right? Mm. So if the DCF tells you that if the value of the company is 50 million, right? And today somebody tells you, hey, I want to let go. I'll sell you for 30 million. Mm. At least you still got 20 million profit today. Yeah. So why yeah. not? Yeah. Mm. Uh, so as far as the ordinary man in the street is concerned, they won't feel it at all. They won't yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah? Uh, they won't know. It's just like our tool concessions as well. Yeah. Uh, everything is structured in terms of uh, the toll rates, uh, the traffic studies, what is the amount of, you know, cars. Uh, I mean, because some of them, they have clauses, yeah, that if the traffic is less than what is predicted, the government have to compensate them yeah. or whatnot. Yes. So all this is all structured already, one. Yeah. Uh, so that's why toll concessions are very rich in terms of valuation uh, because of the structure, the way it's been done. Mm. And of course, you also see that... Uh, for example, plus, yeah, they also have extended their concession, yeah, because uh, the government don't want to increase toll rates, so compensate by increasing the concession period, for example. Rather than right. cough up the money now. Yeah, so so you as a user, toll user, uh, let's say you pay two ringgit at the Spring Highway or whatever, yeah, uh, you will continue to pay two ringgit. Lah. It's only thing, instead of finishing in 2027, it's not going to finish until 2025 20, or 2040. Yeah. 
yeah. right? So you don't feel it. Mm. And, yeah, <laughs> but the concession holder gets an extended period. But yeah, in a way, is, isn't it? Isn't it okay? Yeah, you're right. The the, yeah. the the man on the street doesn't feel it, but it's already being paid in some way through taxpayers' money because of inefficiency. I mean, that's well, where I'm coming from, lah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you ask uh, some people, they will tell you this. These toll companies, they've already reaped the value of their investment long ago. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, so they are just sitting on a cash cow. Simple mm. as that. Mm, All right, mm. uh, because to con- I mean, to construct, for example, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's not very expensive, and I think they already recovered their their, their investments. Yeah, uh, long ago. Yeah, mm. so but because they have a concession for a certain period of time, and that concession has also escalated uh, toll. Yeah, in terms of every three years or five years or whatever. But if the government comes to an agreement, they say okay lah. People do want toll price, toll rates to increase. Yeah, so okay, I will give you longer period. Mm. Yeah, so that's what happens. I see. I see. Great. Um, the next article that I want to touch on is actually this is this is has been ongoing. Even MJ and I we recorded quite a number of videos on foreign insti buyers and uh, ah. local insti buyers. So you see, you wrote about you know buy Malaysia first, which is a very catchy title. Uh, <laughs> It highlighted the likelihood of um, local institutions and retailers mopping up the shares yeah. that are being sold by the foreign entities. So then, you suggested five main improvements to encourage this uh, foreign investment. Yeah, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think right. I think. Yeah. So it was um, growth in earnings, which you already pointed out earlier. Yeah. Uh, clear policies also pointed out market catalyst in terms of reform FDI policies. Stricter governance uh, structures, and lastly, improvement of market liquidity, and this is the one I want to touch on. Yeah. So you feel that twenty five percent of market liquidity, uh, a free float of market liquidity, mm. is a little bit too low. Now yeah. uh, you were suggesting something about forty percent. Doesn't that open up uh, um, scenarios where you know uh, people do a dawn rate on us rather than we do a dawn rate on Gatsby? <laughs> <laughs> if you get what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's what, what happened to Gatri, right? Remember? Yes, yes. Yeah, yes, so yes. the reason why I, I highlighted that issue is that, you see, Malaysia over the years, since 1990s to now, uh, we have lost out in terms of our uh, being in the radar, hmm. right? Uh, we used to have, uh, I think, about 20%, if I'm not mistaken, MSCI X Japan in terms of rating. Uh, but because other market has developed, yes, we have developed, but we have not developed as much. Other markets have developed in terms of size, big, big companies, tech companies, you know what not, right? So we became very small. Mm. So the moment we became very small, our weighting has become, you know, meaningless. Two mm. percent, I don't know what, whatever. Yeah. So when your weighting market weighting is two percent, individual stock weighting, you can imagine how low it is. <laughs> All right. So the reason why I say 40% is because to increase our liquidity. So mm. if we increase our liquidity, our market position, instead of 25%, instead of let's say 2%, then our our uh, market weight will go up to 3 more percent All right? Because our liquidity factor from 25% is 40% now. Mm. Mm. So that's what I meant. All right? To increase liquidity is to increase our weighting in the market. Great. So because if you are a foreign investor and investing and your benchmark is MSCI Asia X Japan. Mm. And Malaysia's rating is from 2% go up to 3%. Then it's a 50% jump, you know. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so big. that would be an catalyst, lah. <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, okay. Now I get. Yeah, your thoughts. Uh, yeah, is is. I think the the struggle. Correct me if I'm wrong, Pankas. Um, the struggle with a lot of Malaysian yeah. or maybe Asian companies that list is that usually they are conglomerates that are held by family, not so much an institution like a GLC, like a Maybank and all that. Mm. And I think their struggle is like, how much do I want to hold on to? Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, how do you, where do you see that direction? Because, you know, in the US, it's, it's much more mature, obviously, they yeah. have a longer runway, and they yeah. are more willing to institutionalize, get professional yeah. managers yeah. to come in. Correct. Correct. Whereas in Malaysia, a lot of these are, even, you know, the big conglomerates like Denting, you know, it's like, it's, it's going to remain the family, family for yeah. the very foreseeable time, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you think, um, either through corporate governance or through policies of the government that we can allow uh, companies like this to institutionalize faster, therefore the free float. Because I, I don't foresee any other catalyst for them to let go of more liquidity into the market. You know What, what are your thoughts, uh, Pankaj? I think it's a mix of both. Uh, yeah. It can come from the regulators itself in terms ah, okay. of increasing the free float. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, instead of 25% float, uh, I have said this many times. Uh, I think companies coming to market should have forty percent float. Mm. Yeah, uh, sell more shares. You know, mm. uh, to the market. Yeah, let the market decide. Yeah, and you, I mean, even major shareholder, you don't need more than fifty. I mean, 70 percent is no need. Yeah, mm. uh, even if you are a single largest shareholder, you will still control the company. Right. Know? It's just that you're not a major shareholder. I mean, major in the sense 50% and more. Yeah, right? you, yeah. If you are 35-40%, you still control the company. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not an issue, really. I mean, uh, for example, if you take uh, some of the family offices, mm. uh, some of the family companies like the thing just now you mentioned, I think the family owns less than half. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't need to hold half and half and more, you know, 60 or 70%. 40, yeah. 45% is enough. Yeah. So to me, I don't see a reason that is an excuse. In fact, the more liquidity you provide, the higher your rating. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's so, right. for example, if you are a KLCI yeah. stock, right? And this happened to a company called uh, Mister DIY. Mm, mm. Yeah. Mister DIY was recently included in the KLCI. Yeah. Uh, but Mister DIY came to market uh, with a very small free float. Mm. They were given an exception. Uh, to be listed with just 15 percent yep so when they got into the klci their rating is 15 percent of of that company shares uh, that are right. as part of the index yeah right others are all 30 percent 40 percent 50 percent some 60 percent you know there's only 15 percent mm. right because the free flow is very small correct 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 all right so if diy had sold more shares in fact they did i think about three weeks ago uh, the major shareholder, one of the major shareholder, uh, sold down about six percent. So now the free float has gone up to twenty one percent. So in so the weighting of DI Mr DIY in the KLCI will actually increase mm. from zero point seven percent to about I calculated the other day. I think mm. it will now uh, go up to almost one percent. I see. Yeah, of the index itself. So if you are an index tracker, all right, a Earlier, my my exposure to DIY is only 0.7%. Now, I need 1%. So, I have to buy mm. more shares. Mm. This is what happens, you see. Yeah. So, you increase your free float. You increase participation from market. 
Yes. Especially today with the onflux of all these passive index funds. Uh, in yeah, that's the other thing that Malaysia is lacking. Correct. correct. ETFs. Yes. Yeah. Well, the ETF market is virtually dead uh, in Malaysia. I'm sorry yeah, Malaysia. to say <laughs> Yeah, I tell, there's a uh, well, chicken and egg situation. Uh. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. There's okay. another topic altogether. I wrote about yeah. it as well. Yeah, I have I haven't read that read that one actually. <laughs> too many to read actually. Too many, too many. Yeah, uh, MG, any questions before I move on? No, no, no. Okay, <clears throat> this is I think your most read article. Uh, if I remember, it was uh, you wrote the title "Battered Down," <laughs> which is a very very catchy one. Um, BAT and uh, what the government can do to combat illicit trades. So for those of you who don't understand the pun uh, battered down it stands for british american tobacco yeah, yeah, yeah. Down, right yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, the struggle is that both the company and the government has to combat illicit trade of cigarettes yeah. and <clears throat> do you think the government is doing enough one and what can both the company and the government do with the threat of things like vaping coming into the picture what very do you think good they can do? Yeah. very good question yeah. uh, and i think there are some solutions and in fact i think i have also written about this mm. uh, in some op-ed uh, that i had written uh, in fact um, there's another paper that's coming out soon but anyway i will just briefly give you a picture mm. first of all if you look at illicit trade illicit trade has gone up from about 33 percent to as high as 63 percent last year mm. uh, it's come down a bit in the last six months uh, to about 57 58 percent Okay. And the government loses a lot, all right? Uh, because, you see, the government thought that by raising taxes, excise duties, yep. uh, from 220 ringgit per thousand cigarettes to 400 ringgit per thousand cigarettes, something like that. And what has happened is that it has made cigarettes very expensive. Mm -hmm. And being an inelastic product, yeah, where demand is pretty much still there, and again, I go back to the issue about income, mm. all right? Because cigarettes are smoked by a lot of the lower income group, mm. B40 and below, a lot of them, I think maybe 30, 40%. Although the actual prevalence of smoking in Malaysia is about 21%. Uh, so they find that the premium brands are too expensive, mm. all right? The price goes up to 14, 15, 16, 17 ringgit, right? From 12, for example, Dunhill, used to cost 12 ringgit per pack of 20s. It went up to 17.50. Mm. Right? So very expensive. So of course, they look for alternative. All right? And that's where the illicit came in. Mm. All right? So there is demand. And how much does illicit cost? 4 ringgit? Mm. 5 ringgit? All right? So the price differential being so large, right, caused demand to increase. Our borders are ferrous. ferrous yep. Yeah? easily smuggled, all right? We have so many coastal landing points, not manned, not enforced. Enforcement has been poor, all right? So that caused uh, illicit market to really balloon. Mm. And I did recent study as well in terms of market. The illicit trade in the market today is worth 8 billion ringgit. Wow. All right? And if you take taxes alone, Right, because for cigarettes, there are two taxes uh, that government collect: excise duties mm -hmm. and, of course, income tax. Mm. And you will note that 
excise duties plus income tax is about 60% of the market's revenue. So effectively, if market is 8 billion illicit, the government losing about close to 5 billion a year mm. in terms of tax collection alone. Mm. Right? And of course, uh, it also means that a lot of signals are being smuggled and don't know what not, you know, a lot of corruption goes on, you know. Uh, so, last budget, two things the government did. Mm. One is that they now designate that only five uh, landing points or ship ports can act as transshipment hubs. Ah. All right. Uh, other ports, you cannot bring in cigarettes or for transshipment purposes. But what has happened is about, again, enforcement. All right. Mm. You still see cigarettes being smuggled from these transshipment points. I see. And I also mentioned earlier, coastal points. Right? A lot of the coastal points are not really meant. So it's actually about enforcement. So if you look at other markets in, in, in more developed markets, when they raise cigarette prices, yes, there is some element of increase in illicit trade, but enforcement is key. I see. So enforcement has been lacking in terms of clamping down on illicit trade. Mm. And that also has caused a lot of losses for Malaysia as well, because all three whether it's BAT, JTI, or Philip Morris, all have closed their plants. Mm. Today, cigarettes is fully imported. No more manufactured in Malaysia anymore. Mm. 700 old people have lost their jobs yeah, because of plant closure, because it's no more competitive. Yeah. Right? So the government loses out on investments. People lose jobs. Government loses in revenue, all because of illicit trade. So mm. the solution to this, there are two things. One is, of course, enforcement again. Yeah, you need to step up, uh, not only just on transshipment, but also on the coastal points. Uh, I also suggested, but maybe difficult to implement, because a lot of this, when you have two-thirds of the market illicit, that means it's been sold everywhere, right? Go after these guys, the retail guys who are selling them. Mm. It's against the law, mm. right? You're selling an illegal product, mm. it's actually against the law, all right? So if you go after them, then they will not sell. It's all about supply and demand, mm, mm. right? And also, it has been proven, yeah, that an increase in illicit, uh, what they call excise duties doesn't solve the problem about smoking prevalence, mm. right? People will still smoke, correct? Uh, because as I say, it's an elast- uh, uh, inelastic in terms yep. of demand, uh, and it actually backfires. Yeah, right? so. There are two things that government can do. Either you have an excise duty moratorium, that means you don't increase it anymore, or mm. if you are kind enough, noticing or notice that the market actually will be, or government's revenue will actually increase, you should lower excise duties. Mm. All right? Make cigarettes more affordable. Kill off the illicit fellas. Eight billion ringgit worth of market is huge. Huh? Actually, you bring it, you know, just a wild idea. Lah. You bring it down to a point where it makes no economic sense for the illicit cigarette guys to sell. Yeah. And you I think even you go back to about, uh, if the cigarette prices are back to about 10, 12 ringgit, it's mm. already considered okay already. Exactly. So exactly. You will kill off the illicit already. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Then government collects more revenue. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah? And, mm. and, and of course, the other thing that uh, the government talked about is when you talk about illicit, of course, your whole idea is you want to Cut. You want the reason you do it because you want to cut down people from smoking. 
because there is a health cost that's involved to it. Yeah, mm. uh, you know, smoking kills. Uh, but other countries, you have seen it in New Zealand, in Australia, in the UK, in the US. Uh, we call it uh, tobacco harm reduction program (PHR). Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so tobacco harm reduction is actually a way to uh, help smokers to quit the habit. Mm. Okay, and one of them is of course vaping. Mm. Right. Uh, studies have shown in the UK uh, that vaping is effective. Mm. Uh, in fact, it's as effective as ninety-five percent. Right. People who go to vaping from smoking will not go back to smoking. Mm. And vaping is much more healthier. Mm. Right, because you take away the, the, the tar. Yellow, yeah, the tar, yeah. the tar effect, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's not that nicotine doesn't kill you, uh, It's the tar <laughs> and the That's chemicals. Right. That's right. Right. So that actually helps. Mm. And I was in a panel discussion just two weeks ago. Uh, so I've been involved in these issues as well. And this gentleman from UK, he actually says that in the hospitals in UK, right. Uh, when they get patients who have smoking issues, they give them free vaping devices. Tell them mm. to smoke vape. Mm. Encourage them to switch. And that has been successful. I see. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So vaping actually is a way to uh, switch from smoking, you know, habit towards you know, something that is less harmful to the body. Mm. Yeah? But again, there's another part about vaping lah which I think the government needs to address this issue as well. They have talked about it, but they have not introduced. Uh, we don't have a Tobacco Act, Tobacco mm. Control Act. Mm. That's one. Uh, we need to have a standalone Tobacco Control Act for smoking and vaping. And the other issue about vaping is that, like last year's budget, they impose a tax on the vaping e-liquid. Yeah, uh, But that's only on uh, non-nicotine base. I don't know I why. It could be also on nicotine base because mm. nicotine base e liquids for vaping is ninety seven percent of the market. I see, and vaping market is huge. Huh? Malaysia huge. actually is a forefront in the industry. Yeah, uh, today the market is more than two billion in terms of revenue. Yeah, and I can tell you, uh, as I shared before, uh, this market can grow four to five times the size it is today in even five years time. Yeah, if regulations are introduced. I see. So the government needs to introduce regulation, you know, for vaping, including uh, for safety purpose, for control purposes, mm. and of course, quality. Because mm. you want to make sure liquids that are sold are of quality, yeah, not harmful uh, with certain standards in mm. terms of quality yeah, uh, and content as far as nicotine is concerned. Yeah. Actually... It's so interesting that you brought this up because there was a time when I took a Grab car from the airport to uh. to home. The driver is a part-time Grab car driver, full-time vape dealer he has. You know, uh. And he told me that the best uh, vaping liquids actually come from Malaysia because yes. the raw material is actually palm oil, glycerin. Yeah, so they correct. make it into glycerin. Yeah. Correct. So it's, it's good that you brought this up about you know regulation of maintaining that car. Because then... If we if it's regularized, then yeah. people will know what kind of what quality. kind of liquid, yeah, the Content. quality that we're getting. Yeah, yes. correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, from vaping, let's <laughs> move to property. Uh, wow. MJ, sorry, you had a question. No, 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 no. Yeah. So from 
vaping and smoking, we now move to property. And I know uh, you are quite passionate about this because you didn't just write one, you write multiple. Yeah, multiple. In yeah. fact, there's a, the next one this week is also property. Property, okay. So I'm going to touch this one about... <laughs> Uh, launch control order. And it was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was something very simple. Because, it, uh, you know, just this week, we had a splashdown from uh, Inspiration4 for, for, for the... Yeah, uh, for, yeah. So, it's like launch control, you know. So, okay. So, this launch control is a little bit different. So, it's actually uh, aimed at property developers, especially those that did not meet for credit. So, what Pankaj actually wrote for the, for the listeners who didn't manage to read is that he said that property developers should be curtailed in how fast they should launch their properties yeah. and he mentioned four criteria: strong take-up rate of 80 percent less than 12 months unbuilt sales less than three months of ready inventory and less than 12 months of unsold units that are under construction measured against total annual sales unit now my question is this <laughs> how many property developers can actually meet this criteria probably zero <laughs> and is this something practical you know it, it, you, I, I used so to it's not i wouldn't say it's practical it's huh? I would say it's because the reason is because we have too much overhang, mm. right? And when the market has overhang, the market cannot move, mm. right? Uh, the se- first second half, no, sorry, first half statistics were just released just yeah. last week, yep. and I'm actually reviewing it this for this week's writing. And overhang is still there, both mm. in residential and of course service departments and so forth. And don't know what not. Numbers are rising. Those under construction is still rising. In fact, mm. it's gone up even more. Mm. Yeah, so we continue to build and build and build. Right? When are we going to stop? <laughs> you, you know what happens when you continue to build, right? Mm. You will have massive oversupply. Yes. Yeah. And developers sitting on completed properties unsold. All right. How they, as you know, they will probably finance it by borrowing anyway. It Correct. affects the banking industry. Yeah. Right? And at the same time, you can't turn uh, a hard asset into cash. Yeah, yeah, you have a liquidity issue that's yeah, right, for the that's right. for the property companies itself. Yes, and for buyers or investors, I don't know about you, but I'm sure you you probably hear that market is very soft. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. have a lot of friends in the industry, So <laughs> yeah, so. Prices are not moving. In fact, yeah. I just saw, I was just, as I told you, I'm writing. Yeah. Uh, the Malaysian house price index for the first time in the last 10 years for the second, first quarter, first half of this year, the index actually dropped on a year-on-year basis for the first time in 10 years. Wow. And the worst part, KL prices actually is down by more than 5% year-on-year. Hmm. Usually so it's I, either stagnant or slight. No, this is this this is just the house price index, you know. Oh. This is not even this is basically like a, uh, a summation of everything. Yeah. Right? This is the index alone. So yeah. specifically you may see prices are down some places maybe 10, 20%, you know, some places maybe up a bit, but overall it's down. KL is down 5%. Mm. Right? Which is not very good. Yeah. And at the same time, if you look at the uh, statistics. We will just show you that under construction service departments are just basic, you know. And and in fact, property uh, for KL, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the data shows that both in terms of volume or number of units and mm-hmm. value has gone up like 85-90% compared mm-hmm. to a year ago. Overhang, mm-hmm. huh? 
We have more than 4 billion ringgit worth of overhang properties in KL alone. And yet we are chasing MMM2H people away. <laughs> yeah. No, and yet I can tell you, we still want to develop places that we shouldn't be developing. Yeah, For like example, Kiara. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Why are we developing? You know, this is the question. And yeah. when you do that, right, when market is soft, uh, for example, there is some segment of the market with the property, they are investors. Yeah, they, they buy it for capital appreciation, a little bit of income, you know, renting it out. Yeah. Rents are horrible today. Yeah. Right? When you have too much of supply, how are you going to rent out? Yeah. So the market is going to be stagnant for a while in that sense. Yeah, because of supply issues. Yes. Too much. Yeah. Your thoughts on this, I, I, I'm actually glad you brought this up and it's a very perennial issue because, you know, as, as a Malaysian, mainly Asian families, uh, yeah. it's like your parents will tell you, get a roof over your head, get yeah. a car, get a good yeah. job. You know? and, 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 it's, yeah. and if you link that back to China, China's even worse because property is considered, you know, the ultimate thing, status symbol. You know, yeah. But where I'm trying to come from is this, uh, is it because not just uh it is is it because of a property and pricing mismatch against medium income because you've got houses that are in the million dollar range but you are not seeing enough houses that are being built that commensurates with the median uh, income of the Malaysian citizen is that also a contribution? Uh, that's 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 part of it and the other part is of course perhaps we build along wrong locations. Yeah, mm. where demand is not there, for example. Mm. Uh, and of course, in certain locations, you, you can't price it affordable mm. because land cost is high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cities especially, whether it's yes, JB, yes. Penang, KL, yeah, land cost is high. How do you yeah. price 400,000? No way, for example. Yeah. yeah? So you got to price it 700,000. So when you price it 700,000, only the top 20 or maybe upper part of M40 can afford, yeah. right? Not many people can afford also. Yeah. So affordability becomes issue. So you go back to structural issue. In yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm very aligned with you. It comes to <laughs> issues. No, because it's, it's like, I, I, I grew up in a family of educators. Uh, you know, in the past where, you know, Mal even Malaysians today, uh, and I came from the oil and gas industry, Pankaj, just allow me a little bit to share. Yeah. Malaysian talent is always very priced overseas because we yeah. speak multiple languages. Correct, correct. We always think on our feet and we're very yeah. resilient, right? Yeah, yeah. And here we are, we see a declining uh, quality of our education and we see a, a change in change in policies that at the whims on fancy. But yeah. you see, while we can lament about it, how can we as, you know, either normal citizens who don't want to be involved in politics, how can we actually do something about it? Is it either through educating uh, people alternative skills from, I mean, this is a very philosophical question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, alternative skills uh, in terms of entrepreneurship. Uh, should we allow corporations to do more in terms of changing the perception of, you know, uh, work cultures and all that? And then uh, the other thing is maybe educating a more bunch of uh, savvy investors to be able to, you know, pump some money into the economy that it can do for good. What, 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 what do you think? You know, I'm just pulling well, rabbits well, out of the yeah. <laughs> I think there's a combination of all the factors in, yeah. I mm. think there's so many ways uh, we as Malaysians can help and contribute yeah, in terms of uh, making things right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
sometimes you'd be surprised uh, one person's effort, you know, can get the ball rolling, yeah, in terms of the thought process, the yes. thinking, uh, why we should do this, you know, why we shouldn't do that, right? So it's always about uh, gaining people to think alike, mm. all right? Yeah, mm. uh, that's that's the way forward. So I I I have a little bit of presence uh, on the social media as well, mm. uh, especially on Twitter. Mm. Yeah, so sometimes I share some of my thoughts there as well. So sometimes it gets a little bit of momentum, yeah, in terms of people reacting to it. And so you get buckets of, I mean, buckets of uh, opinion here and there. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's all about sharing our thoughts. Yeah, mm, uh, sharing mm. our ideas, what it should be, for example. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The gov- Sometimes you'd be surprised the government actually listens. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I think we we should increase our thought uh, sharing. Yeah, in terms of what be more vocal. We want. Yeah, be what more we vocal. want, for for mm. example. Yeah, for let's say you come from the education background. Yeah, what we want for education, for example. Mm. How should our children be taught? I mean, they are no more guinea pigs, you know. We stop playing them, playing around with them anymore, you know. Yeah. How should our education policy be structured so that our young generation are well equipped, yeah, to face the uh, what do you call uh, the current challenges in the in the employment market? Yeah, yeah. skill yeah. sets. Yeah. Skill sets is not just hard skills, yeah. It's also yeah. soft skills. That's right. That's right. Yeah, a lot of people. Like for example, I think one of one. Okay, I'll share with you. One of the things that Malaysia lacks in terms of teaching our youngs is financial knowledge, <laughs> yeah, or financial management, yeah, mm. or how you manage your money, for example. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know. Yeah, we never teach these things. All right, our public schools never tell you how to manage money. Yeah, where do you learn? All right, so one thought process. Another one. All right. How do we develop our children to be leaders? All right. To be able to speak up. Yeah. To be able to form an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. All these are skill sets. Yeah. That's which right. will take them, you know, to, to a higher level in yes. years to come. Yes. And they will be asset to the nation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. so we need to develop them at the young age. And the education policy is actually the base of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Because... Once you put the policy right, you develop the right people, the right skill set, it will fit into the economy. Yes. It will fit into the growth pattern that you are projecting. Yeah, For example, you want to go into this field. Right? Like, for example, you, you know, today we talk about EVs and batteries and don't know what not. Malaysia is totally lost out. <laughs> All right? Where is Malaysia in terms of R&D? Where is Malaysia in terms of attracting FDIs, for example? Yeah. Why is yeah. not? Why we don't see Tesla cars on Malaysian roads? Yeah. There's right? probably three or four, lah, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. why? You know, so yeah. to me, I mean, I don't know. Lah. I mean, yeah. I think the, the, the technology and over the last two years because of COVID, things have changed so much yeah, yeah. in terms of uh, how an economy should be shaped uh, for the challenges uh, that we have today in terms of structure, in terms of technology, uh, in terms of thought process, yeah, in terms of forming uh, uh, a uh, what do you call a strategy in terms of making sure Malaysia moves to the right direction, yeah. so many things, yeah. yeah. So I think it, we we need to share more in terms of our thinking. So that's why I'm glad I have a column in the Star Paper. 
I yeah. sh- I try to share as much as I can in terms of my own thinking. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm also thanked to staff because they don't really uh, uh, what do you call uh, censor my opinion. Mm, they don't edit. They don't edit. <laughs> they don't edit. They don't edit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, not heavily. They don't edit at all. Oh, okay? good. <laughs> it's, it's as published. Self-edited, right? Yeah. Self-edited. Self-edited. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just, do my own self-censoring, yeah, so I try not to offend people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but constructive criticism is okay. I think yes. there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 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 So we need to have more of that. Yeah. Have more thought process. Yeah. And I have question. a couple of follow-up questions. I think well, we are already into Yeah. Yes. I think let this be the couple of last questions. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think there's two things, right? The first is I believe that in terms of the uh, education level, uh, language is really crucial. Because uh, I'm not, you know, I'm born in the 90s, but when Mm. I look back from a retrospective lens, right, what I see uh, from the actions of the generations before me was that the primacy of the English language uh, has seriously dropped. So my mom would be telling me, like, you know, it didn't matter what race you were. Yeah, the teachers all speak great English. In fact, yeah. the teachers were British, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, they always had that really great thing. And then over time, that has been reduced. Uh, yeah. Of course, the majority in the country favours our national language. And actually, to my disappointment, I think the Chinese, which is the second largest one, decided to favour uh, Mandarin, right? Yeah. And so English has basically fallen to, to third place, right? And mm. I think that contributes to that lack of... Yeah curiosity, lack of correct. exposure to international sort of business or technology and science yeah, yeah. and all that. Correct. So that's my first question. And that, you know, is that permanent and therefore we cannot trust the government to educate our people anymore and that we have to rely on YouTube, Google and just individual <laughs> curiosity? Or do you think that can be reversed? That's the first one. And the second one is, how do you get young people, people like, you know, in the in the nineties or even those born after the millennia, uh, to be interested in whatever you're saying, yeah. you know, I think that's going to be a big one. Yes, yes, very good question. Very good question. Okay, first one, education, English. Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, it's not going to be easy to change the path that we have chosen in terms of the direction. Yeah, uh, because of the uh, requirement of the national language. Uh, to be language is a very uh, yes, policymakers can set the direction, uh, but at the same time, uh, being an individual, uh, we can take our own steps uh, to learn yeah, uh, language that are important to us. Yeah? Uh, so English is one of them. I mean, I, I'm actually, you'll be surprised. I'm actually from a Malay educated, uh, what do you call, scholar to bangsaan kind of thing. Yeah? But I switch from BM to English just like that. Right, just by a snap of a finger, I switched from BM to English. Uh, my daughter, uh, she's about sixteen now, uh, and although she started in the Chinese school learning Mandarin, uh, we sent her to English, uh, what they call learning English, yeah, language, blah blah blah, writing, blah, blah. and she's she excels in English now, not an issue, yeah. Uh, so, yes, I think if sometimes, I mean, this is my personal opinion, if the government cannot set the stage for you in terms of education path, you set yourself. Yeah? Uh, you take your own steps. 
Yeah, because you know what is important, whether it's yourself or whether your parents tells you so. Yeah, uh, that okay. Look, you know, son, you got to study English, so I'm going to send you here. Yeah, that kind of thing. So we got to take our own choice. We got to make our own choices. If the government cannot set the path for us, that's one. And your second question is, how do I get the young to listen or to, to be interested in everything you're saying? You know, because ah, I, I think. I think every article you write, no matter in which industry, yeah, I think it's again a very individual. It's about your own passion. You want to learn, all right? And things that you don't understand, you learn. Yeah. So things sometimes like if you ask the young, the young ones about, you tell them about stock market, they are not interested, and I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's about their own individual. Yeah, it's very individual. So it's a question of whether they want to learn or don't want to learn. Right, you can't force them. Uh, so, or you can share with them the window yeah, of this issue. For example, whether it's politics, whether it's education, uh, whether it's uh, the economy, the stock market, uh, learning financial skills. Yeah. So all that are like different different boxes yeah, for you to learn. Uh, so you, if you if you have young people with you, uh, or if you are a parent, for example, and you have young kids. You expose them to these issues slowly, yeah, so that they know what it is, yeah, and they slowly they build their own thinking, their own liking, their own passion, yeah, if possible, uh, into a certain specific area, for example, yeah. So then they will develop their own uh, what do you call passion into that area. So that's the only way I can think of. Like for example, for myself too, uh, I mean, other than my father who was uh, quite interested in the stock market, he he's not a very qualified uh, education-wise. Yeah, He's just a normal uh, call parent. My mother is not at all, right? But uh, all of us, the brothers and sisters and siblings, we took it upon ourselves to learn a lot of this, right? So, I mean, I know generation today have changed. Uh, that's where the guidance from the parents is important, yeah? to make sure that the child uh, is exposed to different different things. Uh, environment issues today are very important. Climate change are very important issues. How do you educate the young about these issues? You know, uh, a lot of documentaries you can watch about climate change. Uh, you can talk about ESG issues. A lot of them are written in the market as well. Yeah, why are they important? Yeah, for for companies that are listed. So all these are issues that can be learned and can be taught. Yeah, uh, can be shared. So it's a question of sharing, a question of teaching uh, as well to a certain extent. And hopefully that the young generation picks it up. That's the only way I can I, I look at it. I hope I answer your question. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not it's it's not something an individual can solve. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did yeah. not expect a Yeah, because to me at yeah. the end of it is it's a very individual thing. But I think education you you pointed out rightly, yeah. Uh, and I think if the government cannot to be simple, the government can't can't set the stage for you. You find your path. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I mean, just to cap it off, right? I I, I did. Uh, you know, when we had that issue of the, you know, I, I call this the year of the three prime ministers, right? Uh, so I think when the when when the when the current one came into place, uh, there was a feeling of downness of yeah. from a lot of people my age and those who are suddenly to be 
starting to become more political aware and all that. Yeah. And I, I actually stated something, uh, I can't remember it was, I think it was online uh, on our social media platforms. I say that, you know, people like to compare with Singapore and, you know, Singapore works because of the government. Yeah. Malaysia works in spite of it. Yeah. So, I, and that resonated with a lot of people, right? And I think that, at least from where I sit, is uh, that I, I don't really hope for the government to change, even yeah. if the opposition come into place. Quite frankly, in the one and a half years that they were in power, or two, two plus years they were in power, they didn't really do much, right? And so yeah. I think that cements my view that really it's, 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 it's up to us. And that's, yeah, why, that's why if I summarize it to that kita jaga kita kind of phrase, yeah. I think everyone across the political spectrum can really identify with that and realize actually the solution is not to change the government, is to essentially uh, minimize its role and let it, you know, do its thing and we will do our thing. And maybe right. it's a good thing that it will be only, they're only collecting 11% of our taxes. Right? <laughs> they're collecting 25, <laughs> maybe yeah. a lot more damage, you know. Yeah, yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah, I think you rightly said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, I got a ton of questions, but I know your type. And yes, um, yes. will you be willing to come for round two, Pankaj? Because wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've got easily another 10 questions here. But wow. anyway, just... Because Maybe uh, it's all because too much of my writing. Uh, you're picking it up That's from right. there. No, That's I right. haven't... No, I, I even have three, three, four questions that are totally not out of your writing. Uh, and I, I okay. hope that you will, write, you, will, you will write about it one day. Okay, but, okay, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I think I'll end off with uh, one question that is um, uh, showcasing your role that uh, a lot of people may not even realize the importance of it, which is uh. being on the Bursa Index Committee. Uh. Yeah, because um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the Index Committee determines uh, the... Uh, you also look through the IPO process applicants and you also determine how you park them. And also, you also determine the sector in which uh, they should be in. Uh, so I, I need to correct you a lot of things, leh. Oh, please, please come. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the Bursa Index Committee is a committee that oversees the composite index. Yeah, mm. the composite index is a index of thirty constituents. Mm. Uh, of course, this committee is set up uh, in conjunction with the uh, FTSE Russell and Bursa Malaysia. Mm. Uh, there are several individuals uh, from the market, mm -hmm. uh, prominent people who are members of the committee. Mm -hmm. uh, so our role is actually to look, I mean, our role actually have evolved over time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in fact, I, I've been the index committee member from day one, mm. uh, but uh, the role has actually changed. Yeah? Okay. Those days, uh, we actually scrutinize uh, the index members who are being included and excluded. Yeah. Uh, but today, our role have changed. Our role okay. is more about uh, looking at the rules, ground rules, mm. and methodology uh, that makes up the index. Yeah. Why? Okay. What is the liquidity rule? Okay. What is the? How do you kick a, a constituent out of the index, or how do you bring a constituent in the index? Yeah. Mm. So these are all the ground rules. I see. Yeah. And there are certain methodology, and of course, because things are evolving not only just in Malaysia but globally, uh, we have to follow what's happening outside the world as well. Uh, so there are other uh, factors that's been put into the index. Uh, for example, uh, one example was that previously liquidity was not an issue, mm. right? But uh, over the years, uh, because market have changed, 
liquidity became an issue. That's why we have what we call free float factors. That's right. That's why I mentioned to you just now, yeah, like company like Mr. DIY, yeah, it came in at only a 15% rating, yeah, free float factor. Uh, but today, of course, it's 21%. Uh, so that is where, you know, our role comes in. So it's more about rules, yeah, rather than, uh, because once you put the rules, it's all automatic already. You know? yeah, who, uh, right. who in, who out, you know, doesn't matter already. You don't need to see you so. Yeah? In fact, you don't even bother. Mm. Yeah? So our role is very limited. Our role is just to look at ground rules, actually. I see. Okay, yeah. great. Um, Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to try to wrap it up because if I go on, it's another rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so things like, you know, I, I haven't asked you about things like activism, short selling, turnaround stories that go on oh wrong, my God. quality of management and multiples. But I, I really hope it's a story for another day. That yeah, yeah, come yeah. On board. I think um, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I would like to sum up that um, this phrase that uh, I, I had a quick, WhatsApp chat with uh, Chris and um, ah. he, he, he summed up this. Uh, I want to get my facts right before I came on. And he said that the reason why retailers love Pankaj is because uh. he always writes and thinks on behalf of the retailer. Uh. Uh, and, and I think uh, based on your writing, based on your thought process and based on what yeah. you shared today, I think that's quite evident. And I, yeah. I do hope that, you know, you continue writing. Um, yeah. when, when, is, when is a book coming out? I, I don't know. <laughs> a compilation of, uh, compilation of all your writings. Yeah, 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 I think that would be the next, uh, next uh, agenda. <laughs> the next agenda, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also probably one last question. Um, what do you hope for the investment methodology to improve uh, okay what do you hope for the retailers invest investing retailers in Malaysia what, what's your hope what do you what do you want it to be well the hope is very simple everyone makes money yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, making money responsibly and at the same time with uh, what do you call little bit of research yeah not just hearsay and rumors and don't know what not and fun thing yeah so all those are Brain, you know, it's a short-term thing, lah. You know, you make money today, you may lose everything tomorrow. Yeah, but if you do little bit of research, you do little bit of homework, uh, try to understand the company, looking at fundamentals. If there are reports of the company, read them. Yeah, uh, because not many retailers are equipped with, with the right skill set. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Do this. Uh, so for them, uh, of course, these are for people who have the time to do so. Mm. But for those who don't. Very simple, uh, yeah. Just go and buy a mini trust. Okay, let the professionals do it for you. Okay, mm. yeah, because that's the only way. Because if you were doing it yourself, you'd be caught, yeah. you know, at the wrong end easily. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you don't have the right skill set and the right time. Yeah, program. correct, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Pankaj, thank you so much for yeah. your time. I I hope the absolute listeners pleasure. got a ton. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure, right, MJ? Yeah, thanks, uh, MJ, I, and thanks, John. Yeah. So where can people look you up if people want to look you up? I. <laughs> I know you know to give out your email. I'm very sure that. Don't be, but maybe can I suggest uh, your LinkedIn? Is well, fine. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm yeah. on Twitter. You can yeah, find Twitter. me there. Yeah, what's your Twitter handle? Well, you'd be surprised. My Twitter handle name is uh, something that's quite unique because I couldn't get for my name itself. Uh-huh. So it became Happy Pankaj. Oh, Happy. Okay. Very easy. Okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll include uh, the Twitter handles, your LinkedIn, and also yeah. I think... Uh, 
probably a link to all your archive columns. I think just reading the archive columns will be uh, a lot of uh, great resource for yeah, yeah, developing yeah. mental models for, as a retail investor. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So once again, thank you, Pankaj, so you. much for your time. And yeah. uh, we look forward to seeing you again in round two, hopefully. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Don't tell me I'll be the only the first person to be in round two. Oh, uh, you... No. Uh, There'll be, There'll be a few round two. There'll be a few Yeah, many, many. Peter, uh, okay. right. yeah. Yeah, Peter yeah, Lim is coming for round two. So, you know, you and uh, a lot of these guys are... Like Chris, I'm trying to squeeze him to come, la, but he, you know, he's like... He's too busy. <laughs> la. Yeah, he's very busy. <laughs> 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 All right. Thank you okay. so much, Pankash. All, All right. right. Thanks. Thanks, yeah. MJ. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Right. See, See you. Bye. Bye.